cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, June 7th, 2011. My brain still hurts from the Mariachi Trench episode of Fighting for the Faith. Oh, man. I actually play, <laughs> played a portion of it to my wife and let her hear it, and she had dreams and nightmares about the Mariachi Trench sermon. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we have to do the comparative work and the, and clean things up biblically yeah, so that uh, we are affirming sound doctrine as well as sound practice. And, uh, you know, that's it. So many people are antithetical to uh, doctrine. Uh, and the reality is, is that uh, it doesn't matter how moral your life is if uh, – if uh, you ain't believing the truth about God, you're, you're not trusting the right thing or person or deity uh, for your salvation. And uh, if you're believing a false gospel, uh, you could be a moral and upstanding person, but your sins aren't forgiven, and that's not a good thing. Anyway, uh, what we're going to do today, today is uh, we're going to do another edition of our light uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith. And we're going to continue with the uh, lectures on the history of Lutheran pietism uh, presented by Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis. And uh, I'm getting very good positive feedback on this. And if you're wondering, why are we studying these uh, lectures on Lutheran pietism? The, reali the reality is is that Lutheran pietism, I think, has uh, uh, um, much in the way of blame for m much of the pietism that has uh, affected American evangelicalism and other things. And so learning good history and understanding this movement and what's going on with it and some of the problems with it uh, will actually help you in understanding uh, some of the challenges we face as we face some of the weird things going on in, in and around the church around us. <clears throat> so without any further ado, here is uh, Dr. Daniel uh, Van Voorhis and the third part of his uh, lecture series on the history of Lutheran pietism. Well, it's a, it's a bit of a different schedule today, so we'll, um, 
we'll do what we can with a, uh, a very tricky character uh, that we're going to be looking at today. Of course, this is part three of a, a four-part series that's really an eight-part series uh, that we'll finish up uh, in, the, in, uh, in the month of August when we look at the American evangelical church in particular. So today is part three, uh, the diaspora of Lutheran pietism. H.L. Mencken once defined Puritanism as the sneaking suspicion that somewhere, someone was having a good time. Of course, this is a caricature and something that we might expect from him. We can make jokes about pietism in the same fashion. It can be a catch-all for a particular social or moral ethos. When I hear the term used, I understand what's being suggested. But for us, and those who want to understand Lutheran orthodoxy, we do well not only to look at the scriptural and confessional foundations of our faith, but look critically at those competing claims, whether they be theological, social, or moral. We need to put the best possible construction on this movement and then dissect it and see what it's made up of. Uh, With Spener and Franca, even with our abbreviated time, it was relatively straightforward. I confess that today with our short time, we have a figure who could take up twice as much uh, time. So my remarks are cursory, and I can spend more detailed questions in the last 10 or so minutes, uh, uh, spend about Uh, 10 minutes with questions at the end, uh, or in private conversation afterwards. Now, pietism, as we've seen over the last two weeks, is a particular movement within the Lutheran Church, broadly speaking, that has a specific historical precedent. Characters, works, themes. I I won't repeat myself again, but I've provided you uh, a brief handout uh, for those of you that would like one. Basically, uh, that just gives you spellings of names, uh, some of the main books, the primary sources, and the secondary sources. There's also a a short bibliography. Unfortunately, in the English-speaking world, pietism has not been treated uh, with the historical precision that I think such a movement uh, deserves. The best works remain in German. However, for a brief overview of pietism in the Lutheran Church, I recommend those uh, books at the bottom. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend those books at the top, but you can read those as primary sources. It bears mentioning once again that if there is one theme that we have seen over and over thus far, it is that of assurance. This is not just a question for the pietist. This plagued Luther. It plagued Calvin. It plagued the church centuries prior to the Reformation to varying levels And it certainly is an issue, however couched, in the church today. Here is the timeless struggle. How do you know? Is it objective? Subjective? Does it come in degrees? What can you know? A simple historical look at the church finds this to be one of the main issues that Christianity has always dealt with in some fashion or another. While the question, this question, does not define pietism, It is a theme to tuck away, something to think about whenever we talk about competing truth claims. Now, if pietism, as a distinct movement, defined by its theological peculiarities, social institutions and major figures can be delineated, then we might expect to be able to find an enclave of 120 proof pietists somewhere. 
And if not, then we might ask if the movement has died. And strictly speaking, pietism as a particular movement is dead. It could not sustain itself. And there are theological and political reasons for this. We'll examine those very briefly in just a few minutes. However, pietism would influence scores of theologians, many of whom would soon seek liberty in the new world. As we briefly look at the death of holopietism, we will be transitioning into Lutheranism in America, which despite the claims of some early American Lutheranism was neither particularly Lutheran nor American. But that's uh, a story for another week. The implications for our own church body and the American church in general will be teased out. And then later in the summer when we examine the peculiar nature of American Christianity from the Puritans to the megachurches and emergent movement of today. If we were to date the end of Hala pietism, and pietism is a particular movement, it would be a generally acceptable assumption to place it at the end of the 18th century. Thus the movement, if we begin with Spainer in the late 17th century and see its apex in, in Hala in the mid-18th century, we see that it had a relatively short lifespan. Its effects, of course, are far-ranging. But the question can be raised. Why did pietism as a particular movement die? The answers I will suggest, I believe, have some practical significance. The first is theological. The theological particularities of pietism certainly had something to do with its undoing. The first generalization that we can make concerns the nature of holiness movement movements in general. Those movements, that is, that place the emphasis on personal holiness apart from theological clarity, they tend to have a short shelf life. A myriad of historical examples could be furnished from the early church and medieval sects up through the ever-changing modern charismatic churches and its leaders. The first issue here is doctrinal indifference. This is an off-sided claim, and a valid one, made against the Lutheran pietists. While they certainly had their own set of doctrines, that is not what defined them. They were not a confessing or a confessional group. Despite early attempts by Spener to remain within the established Lutheran church, his emphasis was elsewhere, and his descendants abandoned the desire to adapt their thought to the historic uh, Christian faith. In fact, as Valentine Lischer recorded in the 18th century, many pietists would actually slip into heresy, uh, and it's, the complete, it's a book called The Complete Timothy Varinus, uh, and, and it's a, a good book. It's from the 18th century. Uh, it was an Orthodox uh, Lutheran who... Um, uh, composed sort of a bunch of newsletters uh, detailing the various theological missteps or heresies uh, of, of many pietists. And he showed how they slipped into things um, such as uh, docetism, the rejection that Christ had a body, and also into donatism, uh, which was probably the heresy that, that uh, many pietists slipped into the most. Donatism was that 4th century heresy that said the sacraments, or your baptism, was only efficacious if the priest who 
did the baptism to you, who baptized you, was holy and blameless. And this is something that, that many of the pietists would slip into. Granted, pietists didn't fully imbibe all of these ancient heresies, but their lack of theological clarity would lead many, probably unwittingly, into them. Pietism would also stress an individualism, which rejected not only the central importance of the church as an institution, but also put the emphasis of the Christian life on the individual's private experience. We saw this last week with Franca and others who insisted that all true believers should be able to identify the time and the place in which they were born again. Perhaps the consequence of this individualism and theology of experience was the time bomb within the camp itself. As we will certainly see in the American church, a theology of experience cannot easily be transmitted from generation to generation. Without an external set of beliefs, passing on the faith is extremely difficult and catechism is impossible. Nevertheless, the pietist movement, strictly conceived, fell prey to this and would soon fizzle out. If there are theological reasons that are central to the death of holopietism, there were also political reasons. As I mentioned last week, the pietists were particular favorites of dukes, princes, and magistrates in Germany. They weren't theologically fussy. They stressed duty, obedience, and absolute submission to the state. Frederick I, the king of Prussia, and his son, Frederick William, uh, despite being Calvinists, actively sought out pietists and their institutions to be the civic and religious leaders in Prussia. With the continued polemical battles between the Calvinists and the Lutherans, these Prussian monarchs saw a theologically passive pietism as the answer to quell these disputes. Frederick I even passed an ordinance outlawing any Lutheran from condemning Franca, pietism, or his institutions. The adoption of a so-called state pietism would eventually lead to the Prussian Union of 1799. This union, which was led by the, the then King uh, William III, Frederick William III, sought to unite all Protestants under one banner. Without, however, the resolution of crucial theological differences. And as history shows, these broad, non-theological, ecumenical movements tend to lead to the death of certain church bodies. One needs only to look at the mainline churches in America that have followed similar trends to see how they fare over just a few generations. There were some holopietists who did have theological convictions and would leave, but those who stayed saw their once flourishing center decay into ruins. So if the movement officially ended, why did it continue to have an impact? Well, primarily through those thousands of students trained at the Hala institutions who for various reasons left for other parts of the world. And remember, one of the emphases in, within Holopietism was mission work 
And so you had many who were trained and then sent out uh, as far as, as the East Indies, Africa, uh, and to the American colonies. Uh, with this social and missionary impetus, this experiential theology, which led to the promised development of better societies, was welcomed in many of these places to which they traveled. As we see this diaspora, this spreading out, and the morphing of historic pietism into the rest of the world, there is probably no better person to bridge the gap between Spainer, Franca, and the Holopietists, and later movements in Great Britain and the American colonies, than Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. If one were to put together a Mount Rushmore of Lutherans, Theologically, we could look to Luther, we could look to Melanchthon on, on his good days, we could look to Chemnitz, Jacob Andrea, jo Johann Gerhard. But in terms of lasting significance, primarily popular significance, we would be remiss to exclude the likes of Spener, Franke, and Zinzendorf. Despite the damage done to historic Orthodox Lutheranism, their impact has been unquestionable on the development of post-Reformation Christianity. George Farrell has called Zinzendorf the most significant Lutheran between Luther and Schleiermacher. He's certainly defining Lutheran uh, far too broadly uh, to, to consider Schleiermacher uh, a Lutheran. Uh, but in terms of those who at least claimed a, 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 a Lutheran heritage, uh, Farrell can make a strong case. Zinzendorf was born in the year 1700 in Dresden, in Saxony, and came from a long line of Austrian nobles. That's why he got the, the fancy uh, count before his name. His father died when he was uh, just a baby, and he was raised by his grandmother, who's quite, quite a famous woman uh, in their town, and, and a well-known supporter of the pietist movement. So, when he was 10 years old, she sent him to Halle to study under August Hermann Franke. Eventually, after spending about six or seven years in Halle, Zinzendorf would go on to study law at Wittenberg. Now, it's his connections to these two universities which give us the first clue as to how we might understand the, the seemingly fractured nature of his theology. Now, to try and understand Zinzendorf, is as important as it is baffling. He never wrote anything systematically doctrinal. All we have are, are diaries and letters, uh, some sermons. And his lack of theological training and subsequent reluctance to write any kind of theological treatise makes him very difficult to grasp. But his opponents and his friends they would both paint a picture of a man who seems uh, almost impossible to understand, as almost if he didn't want to be fully understood. And Arndt certainly had plenty of acquaintances, both friends and enemies. He traveled widely from German lands into Holland, into England, and then eventually through Georgia and into Pennsylvania. He would come into contact not only with a number of holopietists and Orthodox Lutherans, but also the, the poet Isaac Watts, the Wesley brothers, uh, the father of American Lutheranism, Heinrich Muhlenberg, 
and Benjamin Franklin. His sometimes, sometimes distant admirers included figures from Johann Wolfgang von Goethe to Karl Barth. It's the relationship between Zinzendorf and the Wesleys and Zinzendorf and Muhlenberg, which will serve us best to understand his influence and theological orientation. In the first 200 years of the Protestant church, we could probably find no more opposite figures. No two figures more diametrically opposed than Martin Luther and John Wesley. We could probably trace all subsequent movements somewhere backwards to either one of those two men. Nevertheless, John Wesley claimed that while it was gath- while it, well, he claimed that while he was attending a gathering of Zinzendorf's followers, they were called the Moravians, in London, that he heard Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans and had his own uh, sort of spiritual movement, uh, spiritual um, um, awakening. He said he had his heart strangely uh, warmed uh, hearing Luther's uh, preface to the Epistle of the Romans. Yet any devotion that, that, that Wesley would have with, to Luther would soon be broken with his subsequent meetings with Zinzendorf. Wesley first took an interest in Zinzendorf upon his first encounter with the Moravians at the Fetter Lane Society in London in 1738. Wesley was very impressed with the strict regulations for membership in his society. A demanding rule was enforced by which the men were to demonstrate their holiness. There was a two-month probationary period for any prospective member. They met in small groups consisting of five to ten men, and they would bind themselves to one another. And if any of them were to be found sinning in any way against another, they would be banished from the group. Wesley liked this a lot. And, And here we can see that old pietist conventicle model, as well as the model that will be developed by Wesley in his subsequent Methodism. But any hope of a union of these two groups was banished when Wesley and Zinzendorf met in 1741. Wesley had since moved beyond Luther's preface to the Romans, and he read his commentary on Galatians, and this absolutely horrified Wesley. Wesley found Luther to be, in his own words, blasphemous, in linking the law to sin, death, hell, and the devil, and to the idea that Christ delivers Christians from the law. Wesley said that's blasphemy. He believed that the Lutherans, and by extension Zinzendorf and the Moravians, were in grave, grave error. But prior to this, Zinzendorf went to a meeting, Wesley went to a meeting, rather, to hear Zinzendorf talk. And he jotted down notes that he then recorded in his journal. Basically, the talk was on the doctrine of justification. And Wesley wrote down the line from Zinzendorf that to be justified is to be born again of God. Later on, Wesley would go back to his journals and next to that line put in parentheses, no. Change his mind. Zinzendorf met with Wesley to discuss his condemnation of Luther. 
Zinzendorf, in a recorded conversation that both of them saw, so we have good reason to believe that this is actually what was said, either of them would have had the opportunity to say that that was, that was not what took place. But in this conversation, which is uh, quite interesting, Zinzendorf looks at Wesley and says, why have you changed your religion? Zinzendorf reprimanded Wesley for not affirming that Christians are miserable sinners and for affirming that Christian perfection was attainable. Here we see Zinzendorf breaking from the holopietists and offering up a very Lutheran understanding of the Christian life. Zinzendorf said to Wesley, I acknowledge no inherent perfection in this life. This is the error of errors. Whoever follows after perfection denies Christ. All Christian perfection is faith in the blood of Christ. Perfection is imputed. From this point on, the Moravians in London and both the Moravians and Lutherans in America would have very little contact with Wesley. Later, Zinzendorf would travel to Pennsylvania and he would set up some churches there. And when word got back to Halle that not only was he uh, breaking from their tradition, but setting up new churches in the new world, despite having refused to send pastors previously, the son of Franca, who is now overseeing Halle, sent a pastor, who was then working in Halle, to Pennsylvania to counteract Zinzendorf's work. This pastor was Heinrich Muhlenberg. He would also have a heated meeting with Zinzendorf, after which the two would not work in conjunction with one another again. Thus, unwittingly, Zinzendorf's work caused the first holopietists to come to America. We will see Muhlenberg next week. Uh, He was, as I mentioned, the founder of the American Lutheran Church, an absolutely remarkable, remarkable career uh, for good and ill, Uh, and it's a story that that we'll leave for, uh, for next week. So let me stop for one second here. Here we have Zinzendorf oppose both Wesley and someone from Halle, a Halle pietist. So far, he seems to have credentials quite unlike Franca and and Spener. So here we need to be careful and nuanced. When looking at pietism, we can see a clear line from Arndt to Spener to Franca to Zinzendorf. But it's with Zinzendorf and the end of Halle pietism at the end of his century that we see pietism as a distinct movement end. All right, we are going to pause right there to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! 
a complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be and pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Warning, this program does step on pietistic toes. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we truly do depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And right now, we we still need about 200 people to uh, join our crew to ensure that month after month after month that we will make budget, be able to pay our bills, and can keep doing what we're doing. So if you're not already a member of our crew, head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and uh, sometime this week you'll be getting an email from me giving you the uh, download information so that you can download this month's featured ebook, uh, Dr. Paul Kretzman's Popular Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Fantastic stuff that will give you a deep appreciation for the Gospel of Matthew itself and give you a glimpse as to what good, solid Bible teaching really looks like compared to the seeker-driven stuff we review day in and day out here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, we are in the middle of uh, our lecture here by Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis on uh, the history of Lutheran pietism, and let's just dive right back into it. And, oh, I forgot to mention, if you want to make your gift payable, if you want to send a one-time contribution, make it payable to Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Yeah, my brain is... I have to have a talk with my brain. Anyway, here is Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis and uh, the balance of his lecture on Lutheran pietism. Here I'm going to refer back to our early historical theological definition of pietism, that one that some of you have on that uh, orange sheet. The head-heart distinction, the small groups, post-millennial eschatology, 
and a reaction to Lutheran orthodoxy, believing that it did not go, or the Lutheran Reformation didn't go far enough. Zinzendorf does not fit the definition of a pietist. In fact, as I mentioned, with the demise of Halle, pietism is no more. And this is where things get tricky, and perhaps for the Lutheran Church, a bit more dangerous. Zinzendorf was not post-millennial. With regards to that the Lutheran Reformation did not go far enough, that it didn't reform enough, or that it lacked any doctrine of sanctification, it seems he wouldn't agree. His position on the conventicles, the small groups, is curious. He, He supported the Moravians, but he was purposely ordained as a Lutheran pastor despite having any theological training. Uh, However, he was examined by a company of pastors in Berlin. He thought it helpful to make distinctions between confessional groups, and he thought them needful to some extent. But, with this, and the last component, the head versus heart distinction, we see the effects of pietism. No matter his break from Halle and Franca, we're going to see a connection between them. In his many missionary endeavors, which were certainly admirable, Zinzendorf sought to find union with the Reformed, Separatists, and Roman Catholic traditions. Once again, this is commendable. But this happened at the expense of the claims made by each tradition. It was not a unity in belief, but a unity despite belief. If you were working in the left-hand kingdom, building houses, feeding the hungry, etc., a a superficial or left-hand kingdom unity is perfectly fine. Had that been Zinzendorf's goal, his desire for unity would have been commendable. But his goal was to plant churches. And here, a level of theological agreement is necessary. Now, in his personal confrontation with Wesley, he was quite clear that we are poor, miserable sinners, and that perfection is not attainable. But in looking at the scope of his missionary work, such convictions are not to be found. Rather, we find unity for the sake of unity. Ecumenicism without a foundation. Zinzendorf, despite his claimed affinity for the Augsburg Confession, and despite his, quote, religion of the heart, that's a phrase he uses over and over, he was welcomed neither by the Orthodox nor by the Pietists. He fell between two stools, and both parties had reason to distrust him. So where does a historical and theological examination of Zinzendorf place him? It is here that we find perhaps the most significant and lingering effect of pietism, coupled with perhaps the most important question for understanding competing theological claims. It is the distinction that we started with in the very beginning. That is the head versus the heart, coupled with the question of assurance. Now, the question is, why has Zinzendorf found such a welcoming audience? And he has. Uh, The the number of books uh, sold by Zinzendorf, primarily his diaries, uh, have sold, sold very, very well in the past century. 
So why is he so popular now if back in his own day, no one liked him? It is perhaps the nature of these questions and his lack of clarity that allow us today to read him however we wish. But an examination of his letters and sermons do not allow us to leave him somewhere in the middle, somewhere between pietist and orthodox. He may not have fit the hall of pietist's theological pattern, but for whatever stances we can find him making against certain individuals, the crux of his theology and that of the Moravians and that of the later Lutheran church in America was marked by a clear distinction between the heart and the head. And we can say even more than a distinction. The heart, according to to Zinzendorf, is alone needful. Anything pertaining to the head, and Zinzendorf in his sermons, in his his diary, uh, this is crystal clear. Anything pertaining to to, to theological propositions is not just secondary, it is unnecessary at best and harmful at worst. It's worth noting, and I I find this interesting, that that he was was quite well-read, Zinzendorf, and his favorite, or one of his favorite philosophers, was a man by the name of Pierre Bale. Bale is a, a very... Uh, interesting fellow, uh, Bale throughout the 18th century uh, claimed, uh, held on to his Christian faith, uh, but became quite popular because he claimed that anything rational about Christianity had to be banished. That if you had any concrete propositions about God, he could then not be believed in. It's, it's, a, it's a fideism uh, to the nth degree. Zinzendorf spoke uh, numerous times of the, quote, heart relationship with the Savior. He recounted his own spiritual angst as a young man and how he was to find the answer to the question of assurance. He recounted a night of meditation and deep speculation. He decided then that from then on, all religious questions must be resolved with, his own words, heart-grasped truth. It is not unsurprising, then, that he would neglect any theological training and that he would find medieval mysticism as the way towards ecumenical unity. While he wrote and spoke of meditating on the blood of Christ, his wounds, his death, etc., while he wrote about the saving faith, about saving faith, in a nature oftentimes compatible compatible with the confessions of the Lutheran Church, There's a disconnect. He saw that what the Lutheran confessions were doing, as well as what the Holopietists and Wesleys were doing, that all of these things were rational. Whether it was rational consent or a rational observation of one's own sanctification. Anything rational in Zinzendorf's mind had to be banished. For all his seemingly objective talk about the blood and wounds of Christ, it all turns back in on the individual. It became an extremely rigorous uh, experiential appropriation. Goethe, who I I mentioned earlier was an admirer from afar, had some telling words about Zinzendorf and the Moravians. Goethe says, that I eventually moved farther and farther away from this confession was actually 
because of the great seriousness and passionate love with which I had tried to grasp it. Here we see the works of Arndt through the Holopietists come through Zinzendorf and, and eventually land in America. The residue of pietism, at least with regards to the distinction between the head and heart and the nature of experiential assurance, are at the center of Zinzendorf's thoughts. As his followers would multiply, we can trace this thread through the radicals inside and outside the Lutheran Church in America. As for other elements that were influenced by the 17th and 18th century pietists in America, we will conclude with them next week as we finish our brief look at pietism and the challenges it has presented to Lutheran orthodoxy. I will now uh, spend, uh, we have a few minutes, um, just a few minutes, maybe three questions or so, uh, to, uh, to answer about Zinzendorf. Very difficult guy. Uh, this is very, uh, very broad, but... Yeah, please wait for the microphone. Uh, Dr. Uh, earlier, you, you mentioned the Prussian unity, I think. Yeah, the Prussian Union of, of 1799. Yes. Sorry to wonder. Uh, that leads to the uh, uh, formation of the movement Martin II and uh, Martin II. Yes, yes, it was, was the... Uh, Frederick William, the king, uh, the, the Prussian Union of 1799 uh, was, this, was an idea that, that, that Calvinists and the Lutherans, post-30 years' war, post, they thought they could get along and they wouldn't. And so the Prussian uh, kings decided, we're just going to come down and we're going to enforce unity. And it's a kind of unity that, that was without theology, right? That was not based on theology. Uh, and so it would have strong reactions. Uh, Calvinists, Lutherans, Roman Catholics. Yeah, there are a number of movements that start uh, in the late 18th century and early 19th century in reaction to uh, this, this sort of, um, uh, to the state sort of superficial unity. So another question. Yes, yeah, Doctor, um, would you attribute Zinzendorf... Um, theology to current day uh, kind of squishiness, in other words, of theology, <laughs> the in other words, term, squishiness, yes, squishiness, yes. yeah, in other words, like Pastor Nofio and I go to a, a Bible study with evangelicals, yeah, yeah. and, you know, they'll say one thing, and Pastor will say, well, it's really about Jesus, and they go, oh, of course it of is, of course it is, yeah, of course, it's about his blood and his wounds and his death, yeah, but then, and how... I appropriate it to myself. Exactly. We love doing that. We love that, uh, whoop, and then we bring it right back. Yep. And that's really, yeah, that's, that's what we see. And so Zinzendorf, he's a, he's a tricky character because you read some of them and you say, hot dog, this guy's where it's at. This guy, it's, it's all about Jesus and, and the blood. And this is why a number of people thought, this is, this is really good stuff. But that's why you've got to look at, at you've got to look at all of his sermons, at all of his letters, uh, and see then what his followers, and we'll see that in Lutheran Church in America next week, um, what do they end up uh, focusing on? Well, it's that second part. Yeah, absolutely. Other questions about the Count? He's got the coolest name of all the pietists. He wins that award. Dan, I was wondering, would you attribute uh, some of his thought to the start of some of the Norwegian, uh, Swedish, Lutheran churches in America? I know I'm kind of taking from next week, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, Zinzendorf was sort of a, a man without a home. 
uh, the, like I said, the, the Orthodox Lutherans didn't like him, and not even the Pietists. It's really hard for a Pietist to not like somebody. They didn't like him. And, and so he didn't have anywhere to go. And so he would set up these churches, even the Moravians. The Moravians are a... Um, Briefly, Moravians are a church that date actually prior to the Reformation, or at least they put their heritage going back to Jan Hus. Um, and, and so that's, that's their heritage that they claim, a pre-Reformation uh, tradition. Um, nevertheless, they, they start um, with Zinzendorf in Zinzendorf's land. He, he allows them to sort of set up their, uh, their colony there, and then he moves them to the New World. And a number of them actually break from Zinzendorf. Um, and so he sort of... His, his, the connections he has in America number just about every group. Um, he's sort of like the, the brother-in-law that's fun for a week, but then you kind of want him to move on, you know? That's sort of... I had friends like that in college. They'd sleep on the couch, and they'd be like, all right, enough of that. I've got another question. Alice, LOL. Thank you, Dr. Van Voorhees. That's fine. Um, we were at a, Mor- a Moravian colony in uh, North Carolina. They make good stuff. They have great cookies. Yeah, cookies. That's, um, that was but test, if we like. went to that colony today, and would we would we expect them to know that Zinzendorf was a founding oh, a they, foundational? Yeah. Zinzendorf. Thought. Yeah, there's probably a there's probably a statue of him somewhere. Really? Um, yeah. No, Zinzendorf is he's one of those guys that that sort of, and that's what I mentioned in his own day. Everyone sort of said, "No, you're you're not you're not one of us." After a week or so, you know, and sort of move on. And now, perhaps because of that. Um, to use uh, Steve's theological word, uh, squishiness, uh, because of that, now he can be appropriated by anyone, right? And so now it's like, oh, yeah, remember he said those great, he wrote that great hymn, wrote that great poem. He, he actually wrote um, a poem, uh, a number of poems on the Augsburg Confession. Um, I should have checked our hymnal. Uh, I, I bet we've got something by him. I mean, we've got things by the Wesleys, after all, right? I mean, they're great hymn writers. You just wish they would have stayed writing hymns. Um, and this is, so, so yeah, they, they would notice and recognize uh, him as a very significant, important, and influential person. Okay, next week, next week, uh, we're going to be putting a, a little bow on pietism, right, in America. Uh, and then uh, there are some other, other things uh, that will be going on. And then later in the summer, in the month of August, we're going to be doing a series on the history of the church, the evangelical church in America, and we're going to see a lot of these themes uh, come together. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Well, there you go. Informative, insightful, and well worth understanding. Uh, we, Dr. Van Voorhis is doing a fantastic job in this uh, lecture series, and lo- we look forward to uh, one more in this particular one, and then in August, hopefully, we'll be uh, hearing uh, the, his... Uh, Uh, counterpart lectures regarding American evangelicalism and its links to uh, pietism. So looking forward to that. All right. So uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.